Support for Motley Fool Money comes from Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. When it comes to the big decision of choosing a mortgage lender, work with one that has your best interests in mind. Use Rocket Mortgage for a transparent, trustworthy home loan process that's completely online at quickenloans.com. And thanks to Harry's for supporting this episode of Motley Fool Money. Get your free trial set, including a razor handle, five-blade cartridge, and shave gel. Go to harrys.com. Everybody needs money. That's why they call it money. The best things in life are free, but you can give them to the birds and bees. From Fool Global Headquarters, this is Motley Fool Money. It's the Motley Fool Money Radio Show. I'm Chris Hill, and joining me in studio this week from Hidden Gems, Seth Jason, from Million Dollar Portfolio, Jason Moser. And from Total Income, Ron Gross. Good to see you, as always, gentlemen. Hello. Hey. We've got the latest headlines from Wall Street. Award-winning director Steve James is our guest. And as always, we'll give you an inside look at the stocks on our radar. But we begin with the retail sector. Bad earnings reports from a cross-section of mall-based retailers had investors asking about the future of the entire industry. Macy's, Nordstrom, Kohl's, JCPenney, all reporting this week, Seth, and we're not going to go through them one by one, but when you look at this from the proverbial 50,000-foot view, this does not look like a bump in the road. This looks like a shift. If you're in the mall, you're in trouble. People aren't shopping in the mall, and uh, it costs a lot to rent pieces of the mall, especially when you're one of those big anchor tenants. But the smaller retailers and malls are also feeling the pinch. So, you know, Ron said it best. You know, during the production meeting. Why, so I'm just going to paraphrase him. We had a production meeting. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, most people know this. How much stuff you who are listening? How much stuff are you ordering online? The answer is a lot. And restaurants are seeing the same thing. There's people want to blame millennials, but it's everybody, especially millennials, don't want to talk to people face to face. They want to <laughs> order takeout. They want to order lots and lots mm, of stuff. Takeout. I know. <laughs> From uh, you know, from online stores, and it may be a giant one like Amazon. It may be smaller specialists, but if you're not, if the stores aren't being filled, you're getting crushed right now. And this is this is what's happening. And there's really not a whole lot that's going to change it. I think that in some places, like here, you've seen a shift to town centers. So somebody like Target, who's willing to move into in a town center for folks who who may not have them, is almost like an inside-out mall. Uh, it, it's got maybe a couple of big anchor stores. It tends to have some nice smaller specialty places, nicer restaurants, but they also mix in townhouses and stuff so that the tenants, the business tenants who are there, can count on foot traffic. And those are doing really well across the country and in the D.C. area. Anybody who, who, who can adapt their model to online sales or town centers is probably going to survive. Anybody who's stuck in the mall is going to be gone. Well, since Seth paraphrased me, let me paraphrase <laughs> Seth paraphrasing me. No, um, of course I agree with that. We're in the middle of a, a change in consumer buying patterns, and as you said, it, it's not a trend; it's a permanent shift. And as a result, as a result of technology slash Amazon, uh, there are just too many retailers out there, especially um, when you look at the department stores, but the specialty retail too, um, in, in certain um, sectors, they need to. Some will go out of business. It's just the way it goes, sorry to say. Some need to go out of business. The rest need to pare down their footprint. They need to focus on what's called four-wall profitability. Each store, in and of itself, needs to be profitable. Otherwise, it needs to be closed. And then these companies also need to invest in their online experience, because some of these huge multi-billion dollar department stores have terrible online experiences. Well, I'll tell you what all this sort of begs the question is, because I, I mean, I, I do agree there there is a surplus of re- 
retail out there, and there are plenty of operations that the world just doesn't need. If they disappeared tomorrow, our our lives would would not really change. But what is going to happen to all of that real estate, right? I mean, that is, I think, sort of the big question. We've talked about Radio Shack before and how perhaps Amazon would jump in there and use that as some type of uh, piece in their fulfillment puzzle. I think more and more we'll probably see stuff like that happen. Uh, The smart retailers figuring out ways to perhaps use the physical presence to help sort of evolve their logistics uh, in getting products from point A to point B. Now, Amazon obviously is is really the king out there as far as it as far as it goes in in logistics. But I think there are a lot of businesses out there that are learning from what Amazon has done. Uh, Wayfair, I think, is the easy example, and and we've seen where Amazon is looking to make this big push into furniture, and and sort of the big question is that going to be the death blow for Wayfair? I mean, I don't know that it necessarily is because Wayfair is a business that was built on that e-commerce model, and I think more and more businesses that start with that in mind are are going to be okay. It's these businesses that have been around really for our entire lifetime. They they are still married to to very old school thinking. I think in a lot of cases, which uh, is really going to cost them. But to go back to something that Seth touched on in terms of the town centers, I mean, we live in a we live in the Washington D.C. area. If you live in a small town or not even a small town, a you know a smaller city, um, you're still dependent on a lot of sort of bricks and mortar retail, and it's going to be I think one of the one of the many things to watch in all of this is. When does the shift take place for sort of the smaller towns? And to your point, like what what does happen to all of that real estate? Well, I think in the smaller towns, probably Walmart has already has already taken out a lot of the the really mom and pop stores. It's kind of the mids in the suburbs where they're really having these growing pains. And one of the other things that can happen to malls, and I think it's happening, is it the landmark here in Alexandria is now one just going to be knocked down and turned into a town center? I mean, yes. they're just taking they're they're going with this completely different model. In one thing we saw earlier this week, Coach buying Kate Spade for almost two and a half billion dollars. I'm curious, Ron, for investors who are looking at retail, is is this something we should expect to see more of? Yes, some of these are going to go out of business, but some of the, you know, in the case of Kate Spade, I think Coach looked at that and saw a pretty good value. And I'm wondering if we're going to see more consolidation. I do actually like that acquisition. I agree with you. And yeah, usually when you see paradigm shifts, that two things happen. Some go out of business, and then the rest consolidate. Um, the investment bankers love it, and then five, ten years later, we go through another shift, and they get to break them up again. Um, but I would expect to continue to see, um, especially the little guys, get gobbled up by some of the bigger folks to kind of shore up the business, drive profitability and growth. Yeah, and you might have a little more hope for specialty retailers with a decently strong brand. But if all you are is, I mean, Sears, and everyone knows who these are, but they really, they really don't have their own stuff, J.C. Penney. I don't know what the future is for them, except bye-bye. This week, Snap issued its first quarterly report as a public company, and the reaction from Wall Street was one of abject horror. Snap <laughs> lost more than $2 billion in user growth was weaker than expected. And Jason, CEO Evan Spiegel, finding out this week something we've said on the show before. Running a public company, harder than running a private company. <laughs> sure. Cue the ephemeral profitability jokes. <laughs> um, I, mean, I guess, really, that's not applicable here because there was no profitability to begin with. Um, not that that's any real surprise. I think they have uh, ways to go to actually get there. I think the good news for Snap at this point in time, this was the first call. 
and they have an opportunity to learn from their mistakes and to get better. I think the bad news is pretty much everything else about that call. <laughs> I mean, and, and I, I, I went through and call. I listened to it, and yeah. I, I really, this is one where you don't want to read the transcript. You want to listen to it and see sort of how these, how this team sounds, how they, how they work together, what they're talking about. And I, I don't know that I don't know that Evan Spiegel does himself any favors by trying to, to hold his cards so close to the vest. And and that ultimately is kind of what you got from this. It was number one, I think that he's probably fallen a little bit for his own hype. And number two, he's he's not really willing to give up so much information as far as plans for the company, a roadmap, the profitability, products they have, uh, you know, features, whatever it may be. And so so the market essentially everybody everybody's gonna stuck here wondering, okay, what exactly is this business and what kind of growth uh, can we expect from it? Because Certainly, the numbers were were less than everyone was expecting. I mean, when it comes to revenue growth, when it comes to user growth, um, I mean, there are some big questions here, and, and it's it's reasonable to assume that they're going to have some issues getting there because Snap or Snapchat is is a sort of a niche platform. And so, the really bad news for investors, even after this big sell off this week, is that the stock is still absurdly overvalued by virtually any measure. And I mean, if you look at it just from a price to sales perspective, and we can't look look at it from a price to earnings because there are no earnings yet, I mean, the, the stock is still trading at 41 times sales. And to put that in perspective, <laughs> Twitter is trading at less than six. Zillow is trading at less than nine. And these are two businesses also very, very much internet-based, non-profitable businesses. So, I think those are pretty good apples-to-apples comparisons here. The expectations on Snap right now are just absurd, and so I, I fear that investors who are thinking, "Oh, we'll just wait this out or maybe buy on this dip," I, I really don't see a scenario where this stock doesn't get cut in half from today's level. It doesn't. Snap doesn't really. I don't think pass the "what would happen if it were gone tomorrow" test that we talked about yeah. with some of these stores. My kids would be a little upset. Yeah, but then they would just start They'd get over the next day. Stickers though. on Facebook or and and chat on their iPhone or whatever. I mean, yeah, they've got a pretty big user base, but what what they're selling is not really anything all that differentiated. I, I hate seeing them miss and, and report disappointing numbers so close to an IPO. I mean, the, the roadshow was just like a minute ago, and, and the guidance to the street was a minute ago. And then to come out and say, yeah, I guess our visibility wasn't that good. You know, it's just it's just disgusting to see the stock get hit like this, which 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 is appropriate. It should have never went out at that valuation in the first place. It's just not appropriate. Yeah, I, I don't want this to be just some kind of a gang up on Snapchat. And let's just come call on, this thing I do. done. Let's I mean, just, I do think I do think that there is potential there. Okay. I mean, obviously they've built up something that a lot of people out there like to use. Its core function though, as a messaging app, is very replicable, right? And we've seen Facebook put up sort of copies of that and, and do pretty well with it. So I think the key for Spiegel is gonna be number one, learning how to behave as a CEO. I mean he's twenty six years old. I remember when I was that age, you kind of think you know it all. Obviously he doesn't and he's gonna figure that out as he goes along. But I think the other the other uh, sort of question that needs to be answered is what else are they going to become? Because it can't just be Snapchat. They've got to figure out a way to be special, to be unique, to offer something that no one else does. Glasses. The camera glasses. <laughs> Nice move. <laughs> Whole Foods' second quarter results weren't nearly as interesting as the company's shakeup in the boardroom. Whole Foods announced five new independent directors, and that private equity exec, Gabrielle Sulzberger, will become the new chairman of the board. 
CEO John Mackey is on our board here at The Motley Fool. And Ron, I'm not saying Whole Foods couldn't benefit from some fresh thinking, but yeah. I wasn't expecting this. I w- well, you know, they were under attack by Jana Partners, Barry Rosenstein over there, activist investor, pretty good guy actually, and a good investor. Um, so they took this move to kind of combat that. So I wasn't that surprised. They put some good guys, Panerich CEO, on the board. I think it was necessary, right? The, the business is just not doing well. Seven consecutive quarters of negative comps. Um, I do like the move to that smaller concept, the 365 concept, but there's only four of them. But but they're hopeful, and we'll see how the rollout goes. New blood on the board is great. Jana is saying we could have used some grocery experience, however, and they that we did not get. You got Ron Shake, who just uh, took Panera private. You have a private equity chairman of the board now, do you think this increases the likelihood that Whole Foods is going to put itself up for sale in the next year or so? I think, you know, also the founder of Morningstar is on, uh, is on the board. They'll they'll help facilitate offers and, and look around out there. I don't think we, I'll see, we'll see that anytime soon. I think they stay independent. TripAdvisor's profits came in nearly 30% lower than a year ago. Uh, it sounds bad, Seth, but it, it's also kind of what everyone was expecting. Yeah, the stock didn't seem to move much uh, the day of the news. I haven't seen it for the next couple of days. But the story there doesn't look great if you're talking about a tech company. you got revenue up to 6%, uh, hotel revenue up 4 click revenue up 12%. But it's really the trajectory you need to look at. Uh, and and a, lot of, uh, a lot of the uh, metrics that investors have been worried about, like average revenue per hotel shopper, are finally sort of trending back up. And the reason they were down in the first place was that TripAdvisor has been reinventing itself over the past couple of years. They started a new search uh, project called MetaSearch a while ago, and now they're doing instant booking, and they have hotel partners. Uh, I think most are all of the major hotel chains right now. And the reason, and so this is actually new business for them, and it cannibalizes the old business. And in the beginning, it, it monetizes less. And people are also moving to the phone, which is a platform that's much more difficult to monetize. And the moves TripAdvisor is making, I think, are the right ones to monetize the mobile platform. But there are growing pains, and so it looked actually uh, like they had made some meaningful progress on that. But uh, it's it's tough when Wall Street would sort of rather see the profit levels that you were making a few quarters ago, but they are, in hockey terms, skating to where the puck is going to be. Coming up, we've got a couple more earnings reports and a few stocks on our radar. This is Motley Fool Money. All right, got to say thanks to Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. When it comes to the big decision of choosing a mortgage lender, you want to work with someone you can trust and has your best interests in mind. And with Rocket Mortgage, you'll get a transparent online process that gives you the confidence to make an informed decision. Don't waste time searching through stacks of paperwork. With Rocket Mortgage, you can securely share your financial information to get a mortgage approval in minutes. And you can even adjust the rate and length of your loan in real time to make sure you get the mortgage solution that's right for you. So, if you're looking to buy a home or you're looking to refinance your existing mortgage, you can lift the burden of getting a home loan with Rocket Mortgage. So, skip the bank, skip the waiting, because nobody likes waiting. Go completely online at quickenloans.com. Equal housing lender, licensed in all 50 states, NMLS, consumeraccess.org, number 3030. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So, don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here in studio with Seth Jason, Jason Moser, and Ron Gross. Shares of Marriott hitting a new all-time high this week after a strong first quarter that featured higher room rates and higher occupancy rates. 
These people really seem to know how to run a hotel, Jason. Yeah, and I got to say, I'm a little disappointed because we've got this on the watch list in MDP, and we're hoping to be able to add to it this quarter. Uh, but but <laughs> it's just not it's just not working out for us. Uh, we were thinking there may be some some reasons uh, for caution there, given the volatility here and potential travel restrictions and whatnot. But their rev par growth revenue uh, per per a- a- available room still. Firing on all cylinders, as Ron would Bam. say, and it, it looks like the rest of the year is going to be that way as well. Uh, they're going to spend about seven million dollars over the next three years in repurchases, giving a lot of money back to shareholders. They, these guys really know what they're doing. It's a, I think, a good holding. The transition to digital downloads of video games appears to be going well for electronic arts. Fourth quarter profits up big on Wednesday, and for that matter, Ron, so was the stock. You like profits, Chris? I do. Stock's up 640% over the last five years, um, and they keep getting it done. 60% of revenue now comes from digital downloads. Pre-tax income up 36%. Uh, FIFA 17 doing great. Battlefield 1 first-person shooter game doing great. Increased guidance, $1.2 billion share buyback. Stocks on a roll. You know, Ron rattled through that stuff like you play those games. <laughs> My son plays those games, and I sit there in awe. <laughs> All right, let's get to the stocks on our radar this week. And our man behind the glass, Steve Breida, will hit you with a question. Ron Gross, you're up first. What are you looking at? I got a, a recent total income recommendation Oak Tree Capital, OAK. They're an investment management firm founded by Howard Marks back in 1995. A really enviable track record. They, they uh, operate in alternative markets. Nice upside to the stock, I think. And they have a 6.3% dividend yield that looks pretty. Pretty safe to me. Nice and juicy yield there. Steve, question about Oak Tree Capital? How would I describe Oak Tree to a friend? Uh, they uh, manage money for big pension funds, insurance companies through closed end funds, open end funds, and different uh, investment vehicles. Seth, Jason, what are you looking at? Okay, everyone likes yoga, uh, Pilates. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. Everyone awesome. loves yoga. Wait, wait, Working wait. out, right? Going to the gym, doing the Soul Cycle kind of a thing, or the spin, or whatever it is. I'm saying all these names are going to get sued anyway. <laughs> the company is Mind Body MB, and they provide a cloud-based solution for for people in that business to run the businesses, to book the appointments, and in addition to providing kind of the software, they also have a marketplace that lets you sort of get rid of the appointments that you're not filling, do some marketing. They've got a partnership just came online with Google to help fill these slots. They're not yet profitable, but they're sort of on the cusp and they're growing pretty quickly. Steve, question about MindBody. Is there a, a one-stop shop for uh, for this service for all businesses in this? I mean, hair salons, you know, where you're booking people. Is there, does anyone own that space? That's the thing. Nobody really does. And these folks are making a, a, an attempt at it. There's a lot of smaller or other, and bigger companies that kind of own pieces of it. They're one of the first ones to try and, try and do it all. Jason Moser, what are you looking at? Uh, sure, looking at WageWorks, ticker is W-A-G-E. Uh, they just reported a, a pretty good first quarter here. And uh, this this business administers consumer direct uh, directed benefit programs like flex health uh, health spending accounts and uh, commuter benefits and whatnot. Uh, so, they got a good, good first quarter. They have a good pipeline of business here coming down uh, the line for the rest of 2017. Big contracts with the U.S. government, which never really hurts. And they've developed some very interesting partnerships with Lyft and with Uber to really help stoke some growth in their commuter benefits uh, line of business. So, uh, generally speaking, it looks like they do a pretty good job at what they do. Pretty healthy margins, profitable, cash flow positive. A lot of reasons to like this business. Steve, question about WageWorks? It seems like corporations are always trying to spend less on things like employee benefits. Uh, well, I think corporations are trying to figure out ways to get their employees to prepare for things like this more so. And that's why uh, employers will tend to offer these types of programs. I think that's one of the bigger challenges, though, Steve, is getting the employees to actually sign up for them and understand how they work. 
Got a stock you want to add to your watch list, Steve? I'm going with a yoga one. <laughs> oh, come on. Fixed. When was the last time you were in a shop like that? I, a few weeks ago, I tried yoga. It was pretty cool. Oh, lie. Not right. a lie. True story. All right, guys. I hope you had those me. seats Thanks, pants. Chris. Thanks for being there. Up next, the director of Hoop Dreams is back with a brand new documentary every investor is going to want to know about. Stay right here. This is Motley Fool Money. All right, got to say a quick word of thanks to Harry's for sponsoring this episode of Motley Fool Money. I love Harry's. I've been a customer of Harry's for years. I love their products. That's why I'm a customer, because I love what they do. And Harry's is so confident that you're going to love their blades, they're giving you their trial set for free. Free! You just cover $3 in shipping, and you get a free trial set that includes a weighted ergonomic razor handle, five precision-engineered blades with a lubricating strip and trimmer blade, rich lathering shave gel, and a travel blade cover. Stop messing around and get started shaving with Harry's today by claiming your free trial offer. That's a $13 value for free. You just cover the shipping. Hey, Father's Day is coming up. I'm just saying, Father's Day is coming up, and chances are someone you're shopping for on Father's Day probably hasn't done a lot of deep thinking about the shaving process. It's just been like on autopilot for years. And you can surprise him with a little something from Harry's. To get your free trial set, including a razor handle, five-blade cartridge, and shave gel, go to harrys.com slash fool right now. That's harrys.com slash fool. I'm a jolly banker, jolly banker. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Chris Hill. In the wake of the 2008 financial crisis, only one bank in the United States was charged with mortgage fraud. It was not one of the big Wall Street banks, whose names are commonplace for investors. Instead, charges were brought against Abacus Federal Savings, the 2,651st largest bank in America. Abacus serves the immigrant community in Chinatown in New York City. The charges and subsequent trial are the subject of the new documentary film, Abacus, Small Enough to Jail. And it is the latest film from award-winning director Steve James, who joins me now from Chicago. Steve, thank you so much for being here. Uh, great to be here. I think, you know what, they, they just dropped a notch this year. They're down to the 2,652nd <laughs> bank. <laughs> We're going to get to the bank size in a minute, but that, that is one of uh, only uh, a large number of amazing things in this movie. I mean, this is a legal battle, but it really is the story of Thomas Sung, a Chinese immigrant with a wife and four grown daughters. Thomas Sung started Abacus Federal Savings. In many ways, it's him and his family that are on trial here. And I'm curious, how did you come to meet Thomas Sung? Yeah, well, that uh, that was fortuitous. Um, my producer, one of the, my producers on this film, Mark Mitten, who worked with me on other stuff, um, just happened to be friends with the family going back 10 years. And Mark called me one day right before the trial was beginning and said, you know, uh, these, this family I know in New York runs a bank in Chinatown. It's got this crazy trial about to start. And as he explained it all, it just sounded too crazy to be true. Um, and he said, what do you think? Do you th- I think they would be game for us to come and, and sort of document what they're going through for this trial. And so we went and did it. 
if you think back, and I suppose there are remnants of this feeling today, you know, almost a decade after the financial crisis, but certainly you go back to 2010, 2011, 2012, there really was a drumbeat for someone to pay for what had happened. And largely that was pointed at the big Wall Street banks. I'm curious, since you spent time with the district attorney in New York City, you spent time with the prosecution team, did you get any sense when you were filming this that there was almost an over-eagerness to shine a spotlight on this case? Because that's one of the more interesting part of the films for me, is just how, how big a spotlight the DA decided to shine on this case. And I'm wondering if, on some level, the DA's office said, you know what? It doesn't matter that this is a tiny bank. We're going to make someone finally pay. Uh, yeah, I think you're right. I mean, um, you, you know, when, when Cyrus Vance Jr., the DA of Manhattan, announced the indictments, he said that um, this was the first um, prosecution of a bank by their office since 1991. And and he went on to say that this bank, that the abacus that they were indicting, was connected to the the mortgage fraud crisis of 2008. And the thing is, when you look at this, and the film does, the, the, what went on at Abacus had nothing to do with what went on in 2008. And you know, as you learn in the film early on, is, is that Abacus discovered some low-level, very petty fraud going on in in a couple of their branches, and they. They dealt with it and reported it. So in, in so many ways, it's the opposite of the big bank. So, you know, I think Vance would tell you when I interviewed him, you know, he just said, look, we saw fraud and we went after it. There was no other calculation going on here in terms of what dictated our, our decision to bring this to trial. But I find that hard to believe. When you look at the way in which the indictments were announced, where they chained together low-level bank Im- employees, the current and former employees, and paraded them down the hall in front of the media, and he made a big statement of, of you know, prosecuting this bank in, in the connection with the mortgage fraud crisis. It sure seems pretty clear that they were looking for a trophy here. You know, as you said, it's clear that things went wrong at Abacus. They self-reported. They went through the process the way they were supposed to. Yeah. But one of the things that comes to light is that, in some ways, this is a crime without a victim. Yeah. That that you know that one of the people you interviewed sort of compares this to you know the the financial equivalent of jaywalking. Is jaywalking illegal? Well, technically, yes, it is. But is that a great use of resources? And and again, it goes to the question of you know, boy, they really seem to dig in here on the DA side, and. And I'm wondering if they had any sense, because this is one of, for me, for lack of a better word, one of the more joyful part of uh, parts of the movie, is Thomas Sung's family, and in yeah. particular his adult daughters, three of whom are lawyers. Like I'm just wondering, like, did anyone at the DA's office realize <laughs> what they were going up against? Because at least some of them had to think, well, this is open and shut. This is going to be easy. Yeah, I think, and again, they won't admit this, you know. I mean, I talked to Polly Greenberg, who was the head of economic crimes in the DA's office who oversaw the case, and Vance, as mentioned earlier. 
um, they, they weren't going to admit this, but I think, I think that they really thought that the bank would fold and not take this to trial, that they would plead guilty to a felony, which, you know, and that's another way in which this differs from the big banks. The DA's office did offer Abacus the opportunity to plead uh, and, and get a fine, but they, they insisted that they plead to a felony. Uh, you know, none of the big banks got that deal. The big banks were offered fines in lieu of any kind of right conviction, which is another way of telling you that they wanted this conviction, that that was what was important, you know, to have to make the mark. Um, but yeah, it's it's you know, it's just it's it's just it's it kind of boggles the mind when you think about what was going on at Abacus. Um, and the DA's persistence here, because they started looking into this back in 2010. They brought the indictment in 2012. The trial happened, which we covered in the film, in 2015. This was a five-year ordeal that the Sung family had to go through. And as you say, they really are the heart and soul of this film. they, They are this incredible family. They're courageous. They're, um, determined, and they're also very funny. <laughs> I think one of the things that surprises people when they see the film is how much humor there is in this in this film, because the family has just such a remarkable personality. It's, it's really fantastic. You're absolutely right. I'm glad you mentioned the humor, because w- w- it's interesting to see that even though these are grown women dealing <laughs> with their you know, 75 to 80-year-old father throughout the film, the dynamics of childhood still yeah. play out. You know, the youngest daughter, even though she's a lawyer and she's an adult woman, she is. there are scenes where I just, and maybe it's because I'm the youngest of four in my family, but I just found myself both laughing at and sympathizing with her where she's talking and nobody's listening to her. <laughs> yes, exactly. And, and, you know, when we started the film, we hadn't met Mrs. Sung yet, uh, Thomas's wife. Uh, and... Um, when, when, when she finally, you know, she wasn't sure she wanted to be in the film because this whole, this whole situation was so distressing for all of them. And she felt like she had really lost face, uh, you know, which is a very important thing in Chinese community. Um, but when she finally uh, consented to be in the film, then she, you know, she pretty much steals the movie with her sense of humor. You mentioned the five years that this takes place over from the time that, you know, the investigation begins through the trial. Over that five-year period, the bank is still making loans. You know, I think somewhere in the neighborhood of 3,000 loans and only nine default in that period. I mean, at any point, did someone in the DA's office acknowledge, you know what, Um, maybe things would be better off in our overall financial system if the big banks on Wall Street operated on the same level that they that Abacus is, absolutely. I mean, we didn't put this particular fact in the film, um, um, but Abacus's default rate on loans is one twentieth the national average for banks. Um, I mean, they 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 know how to make loans, you know. Um, but uh, the DA's office decided because there was no real defaults to focus on in this trial, they decided that the real victim in this trial was to be Fannie Mae, you know, and Abacus did, and now, again, does a lot of business with Fannie Mae because of the nature of a lot of the loans they do, which are to, you know, people of more limited economic means. 
And so a lot of their loans end up at Fannie Mae. And Fannie Mae, the alleged victim, couldn't wait really for this trial to be over so they could get back in business with Abacus because they were such good clients for them. So, it, I mean, you know, if you made this up and put it in a fiction film, people would sort of laugh and say, oh, come on, you know. <laughs> That's not plausible. But, you know, it did happen. And one of the things that was so remarkable to me and, and our team on this is is that this is a story – um, that no one was really reporting on in the mainstream media at all, including the venerable New York Times. Uh, they did exactly two articles on the entire trial, the, uh, the spectacle of the indictment with the employees chained together and the verdict, which, you know, one of, so it is one of the pleasures, I think, of watching this film is, is that most people who come to it have no idea about this case and what happened. And I'm just so glad that we had the opportunity to tell it. Coming up, we'll talk with Steve about hoop dreams and the business of filmmaking. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here in studio talking with Steve James, director of the new documentary, Abacus, Small Enough to Jail. Film consumption has gotten easier over the last 25 years with DVD players and then the rise of streaming video, Netflix and Amazon Prime and Hulu and all that sort of thing. What is filmmaking like over the last 25 years? Has your job gotten easier? Is it harder? Is it about the same? Well, I mean, <clears throat> for me personally, it's, it, has, it has gotten easier to make films than when I started out. And some of that is a function of, you know, when anybody is starting out in, um, you know, in a field and certainly the field of film, when you don't have much of a track record, it's, you know, it's hard to get yourself established. It's hard to find funding. Um, so that, that's changed for me. I've, I, I'm one of those fortunate people, independent documentary filmmakers who have had pretty good luck with funding uh, although I've raised money in every conceivable way imaginable over the years. Um, so in that regard, it's easier. And it's also, te- from a technological standpoint, it's easier because when I started out, um, you know, the, the technology wasn't so affordable. And if you didn't have money, you had to have someone who had that technology, the, the expensive cameras, the edit suites and such, to, to help you make it even if you had no money. So a lot of that's changed, which is why there's an explosion, I think, of filmmaking that's going on in this country, um, you know, both documentary and, you know, fiction filmmaking. So, you know, it, so in a lot of ways, yes, for, for me personally, it's gotten easier. I think for the industry as a whole, there are aspects about it that, is, that, that are definitely easier. But because so many more people are competing for, uh, the dollars and for the screens and the opportunities to show your work, it's hard. Uh, you know, it's still very hard um, because there's just so many more people trying to do it. You're probably best known for Hoop Dreams, but you've done other sports films, uh, No Crossover, The Trial of Allen Iverson, uh, the film Head Games, which is about head-related injuries in sports. And while you do capture the drama within the games themselves, so much of your films in, in, with regards to sports are about the off-the-field stuff, the relationships between coaches and players, parents and their kids, teammates, uh, the relationship between teams and communities. I'm curious, when you are not working on those types of films, are you, 
what kind of a sports fan are you? Like, are, like do, do you actually enjoy sports? Do you just kick back and enjoy watching a Cubs game? Or does the work that you've done over the last 25 years make you go, you know what, I'm going to spend my time, my leisure time doing something else? Well, that's a really good question. Um, you know, I, I am still a sports fan, uh, for sure, but... Um, but the impact of doing the films I've done has certainly had an impact on my fandom, if you will. Uh, the most acute example I can think of is um, when I did Head Games, the film that looked into the, the concussion crisis in sports. Uh, you know, I've always been a football fan. I've really enjoyed watching football, but uh, it, it definitely impacted my enjoyment of that game. And in, in just this past football season, and it wasn't totally due to uh, these issues, but I, d- I didn't watch a single football game last year except the Super Bowl, which I was really sorry I watched. Um, <laughs> so, so it's you know I, I I have a hard time watching football these days without thinking about just how dangerous the sport it is, and and it's definitely impacted me. When it comes to basketball, which is always my first love and my most um, still remains the the sport I enjoy watching the most. I just don't watch as much anymore because I don't have the time. It takes a lot of time to be a, a sports fan. Um, and I just don't have the time, and so I tend to be much more selective about when I tune in. And it tends to be like right now with the NBA playoffs, I'm watching now. Um, because, you know, to, to spend the time watching an NBA season just seems like a, you know, kind of a waste of time, <laughs> frankly. <laughs> I'd much rather read the sports page, and in a matter of minutes, I get the gist of what's going on, and I don't have to spend two or three hours in front of a television. One of the things that I think Hoop Dreams did for a lot of people, not just basketball fans, but I think just viewers in general did, was it it sort of uh, shined a light on not just the off-the-court stuff, but in particular the, the sometimes unseemly world of recruiting Right. when it comes to high school and colleges. And I'm curious if you think that has gotten better since you made that movie or if it's the same or even worse. Oh, I think it's, um, it's way more of a business now than when we made Hoop Dreams. I think when we made Hoop Dreams, it was, it was a bit of an eye-opener uh, for a lot of people, including me and my colleagues on the film. Uh, as much as we had played and enjoyed basketball, we, we'd never been part of that. Um, that business aspect of it. So yeah, back then it was an eye-opening revelation, you could say, but um, with the rise of the shoe company AEU team, sponsored teams, um, and the fact that colleges are now recruiting players as young as freshmen in high school and getting at least oral commitments from players as freshmen in high school, they're not binding, but still, um, it's, I mean, it has exploded and it is, I, I mean, it makes, it makes the time when we were documenting it in Hoop Dreams look like a pretty Pollyanna time. Last question and then I'll let you go. Your previous documentary was entitled Life Itself. It's about the life and work of Roger Ebert, the late film critic. I'm curious, when you think about Roger Ebert now, what comes to mind? Uh, I'm sure you have any number of memories, but uh, just yeah. whenever he pops into your head, what what do you think of? You know, I I think about him often, and uh, what I think about is, you know, as as he recedes, you know, at least in terms of the fact that he passed away back in 2014, 
He recedes from public view, clearly, although he has a very robust website that his wife, Chaz Ebert, has maintained. Um, you know, there's a real loss there. Uh, there's a loss in the world of film because he was, you know, such a remarkable critic, a, a critic who possessed that ability to to write um, brilliantly, yet in a populist vein that, that anybody could read and, and appreciate, no matter their level of sophistication about film. Um, his love of film, and he kind of symbolized, in a way, you know, I think he symbolized the, the, the film when it was the most sort of powerful and meaningful, at least in the broadest sense, art form, uh, you know, going. And that may be changing now. I think television has <laughs> grown. Um, I think there's real question about the future of art cinema, you know, especially in this country. So his passing also marks a passing of a, of a torch in a way that, that's kind of unfortunate. And then the other thing about Roger is, is that he, he, he wasn't just a film critic. Uh, he, he was a true social commentator, both in his reviews and apart from his reviews. And I think we just, we missed that voice. Abacus, Small Enough to Jail, opens next week in New York City and rolls out nationwide after that. Steve James, such a pleasure talking. Thank you so much. Real pleasure talking to you. That's going to do it for this week's show. Our engineer is Steve Broido. Our producer is Matt Greer. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.